Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And the word that I want you to circle there is debt, because debt is what we're going to be talking about this morning the canceled debt that Paul talks about here, taking place at the cross. Before we do that, though, there's a scene in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, where a father is sending his son out into the world. The father's name is Polonius. He's sending his son Laertes into the world. And he gives him this long speech full of advice on how he ought to live. Uh, he's not exactly Polonius, the father. He's not a serious Figure. He's a little bit of a buffoon, so some of the advice he gives is not meant to be taken quite seriously. He says, for example, clothes make the man, and this is Shakespeare kind of making fun of this, obviously. Character makes the man, not clothes. But there's another uh, statement that Polonius makes that I think a lot sounds wiser as it comes down to the ages. He says to his son, and he sends him out in the world, neither a borrower nor a lender be. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. Don't be a borrower. Don't borrow money from people. And also, don't be a lender. Don't lend money out to people. That's the advice. And I think, if you reflect on it, this is very much a father's advice to a son, an old man's advice to a young man. Uh, don't borrow money like I did, because it makes you a slave. But it makes you indebted. When you go into debt, you are indebted to the one that you borrowed from, and it's not a great feeling. If you remember back, there's a time when you're young, there's a time when your dreams are all dreams of wealth, dreams of riches, dreams of having all that you, you hope for, but you know that you've gotten old when your dreams are no longer about getting rich, your dreams are about getting out of debt. Right? When you're staying up at night thinking, now how, can, how can I have everything that I dream of, but just how can I, I start over again? How can I get back to zero again? Wouldn't that be happy? Our idea of what would make us happy, our idea of contentment changes because we feel the, the weight of debt. So the advice that Polonius is giving is advice that will allow his son essentially to, to be free, to be autonomous. Right? If you go into life and you never borrow anything, you don't owe anybody anything. And if you don't owe anybody anything, then that's fantastic. You can sleep at night. You'll be free of that sense of obligation, of that sense of worry. And don't lend money out either, he says, because most of the time people aren't going to pay you back anyway. Right? So this is a way to be free of entanglements with the world, to be autonomous. It's a good thing when we turn to Colossians 2, that we see, however, this word debt. Right? When we look at Colossians 2, with this advice in mind, this path to freedom, Paul reminds us that we don't have that option. We don't have that option. We are people already, by virtue of what we are, people who live 
under a debt. And that idea of debt, as it's used in Paul's reference to the cross, can be very helpful to us uh, metaphorically by means of analogy, because debt is something we understand. But we know what it's like to be in debt. And this can help us, that feeling can help us appreciate another feeling that we have a much harder time getting in touch with. Another burden that we have a hard time feeling the weight of, and that is the burden of sin. The burden of sin. Maybe we don't spend a lot of sleepless nights agonizing over our sinfulness. And we have a difficult time uh, seeing ourselves as sinful, feeling grieved by our sinfulness. But we don't have a hard time staying up at night thinking about our debt, thinking about what we owe, thinking about how will we ever pay what we owe. And if we can connect those two things, maybe we can begin to understand how we ought to feel about our sin. Because we have to feel our sin first before we can appreciate the real freedom that comes in the gospel. When we talk about grace and the freedom that comes from grace, it's possible to speak very glibly, very lightly about that freedom. We don't value it because we never really felt the weight of the thing that we were set free from. We live in an antinomian age. Uh, antinomian is just a fancy way of saying we're against law. Like we're not looking for rules, we're looking to be free from rules. In that kind of an environment where the church is, has really, over the course of time, found its best to simplify everything, to streamline everything, to say to you that the Christian faith is, is not all of this, it's just this. We boiled it down to the bare essentials. In that kind of an environment, it's easy to feel free and it's hard to feel the weight of sin. It's hard to feel that anything that we've done is really all that bad. We have to get in touch with our sense of sin. We have to feel the weight of our sin before we can really enter into the freedom that comes from Christ. I had a well, for me, an exciting moment this summer. For some of you, it may be difficult to appreciate why this is exciting. I was in a bookstore, uh, Howell's Bookstore in Portland, Oregon, which they describe as a city of books and not without reason. It's a city block full of books you can go through here for days and, and not exhaust all of the options. And as a lover of books, I gravitated towards the theology section. And in that section, I found a book that I've been looking for for a long time. Edward Fisher's The Marrow of Modern Divinity. The theology book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Uh, although don't get too excited, it's not that modern. It was written in the mid-1600s. So, uh, not all that modern. But it's written as a dialogue. It's a little bit like a platonic dialogue. You have different characters who represent different positions, and they basically talk to each other about theology. So the main character is this guy called Evangelista because he's the spreader of the gospel. He's the one with the evangelist. And he interacts with a number of characters. One of the guys that he interacts with is called, I have to, to look at this because it's a hard word, Novo Bodhista. Novo Bodhista, which means a prattler of the law. A prattler of the law. In other words, he's a person who's always going around talking about the law as if he understands it 
as if he keeps it, as if he is an upright person. But really, that's all nonsense. He has no idea what he's talking about. So an interesting conversation ensues between the evangelist and this guy who thinks he keeps the law. They talk about the nature of the law. They talk about what it means to violate the law. They talk about uh, the weight of sin. But eventually, what the evangelist encourages this man to do is not to repent of his sin, to realize his inability, and, and to throw himself in the mercy of Christ. What he ends up advising this man to do is to be even more perfect than he's already doing. He says, you're keeping the law, that's great, but it turns out there's a whole lot more that you need to start doing, so now you need to start doing these things as well. So he kind of piles it on. He does exactly what Jesus does in Luke 18 uh, to the rich young ruler. Right when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, all you have to do is keep the law. The rich young ruler, he's not discouraged by this. He's excited because he has kept the law. He says, all these things I've kept from my youth, I've done it all. And then Jesus says, to him, oh, great, there's just one more thing that you need to do. Sell all you have and give the money to the poor. And this discourages him because he's very wealthy. In that moment, you see Jesus doing something that, you know, I suspect, he's thinking to myself, like, I wouldn't do if I were having this conversation. If someone were coming to me and asking me what is the way of salvation, I can't imagine sending him away the way Jesus does. But the fact that Jesus does this ought to tell us something. That the man that he's speaking to is incapable of hearing the promise of the gospel, but he's still relying on himself and his rules. He still thinks that, that the good news of the gospel is basically that God has proclaimed the rules, and now what you need to do is amend your life. You've now been told you haven't been living the way that you should be living. Now it's time to start being good, and you can do that on your own power. That's what's been challenged. The idea that all the gospel is asking us to do is mend our ways. Instead, the gospel is asking us to realize that we owe a debt that we can never pay. That we are so deep in debt that there is no hope of ever paying it. Because sin, our commission of sin, it includes a debt. And a debt now must be paid as a result of our transgressions. By breaking the law, we've done something that gets essentially ignored. Instead, we've incurred a debt that must be paid. In these days, we worry more about what we owe the bank than what we owe to God. But I think if we can remember like what it feels like to owe the bank, maybe we can get back in touch with what it feels like to owe God to that extent. To actually owe something. To be on the hook for something as a result of the lives that we've lived. So we can have a deeper sense of the weight of our sin. And also, more importantly, that we can have a deeper sense of the freedom that we have in Christ, and what it feels like for that weight to be lifted. So when you think about sin as a debt, it's helpful to think about your own debts. I won't ask you to, to enumerate them, but think about what you owe. Think about the money that you owe. Think about the payments that you have to make. If I think about mine, I don't like it any more than you like it. It's 
nice to forget about these things. Lori and I, when we returned home last night, had a stack of mail on the table waiting for us, and we went through opening them. I was really sad how many of them were bills. How few of them were checks. You know, I'd much rather have people sending money than people asking for money. I expect you're the same way. It, it, it doesn't feel right to see it all going out and not coming in. But when you think about what you owe, you have to remember that we ran up this debt that we owe through self-indulgence. We ran up this debt through self-indulgence. But we can't get out of it through self-discipline. As a culture, we are up to our eyeballs in debt. We owe so much individually and collectively. It used to be that, that we work hard so that we could afford the things that we wanted. And now, we work hard so that we can really hold on to the things that we already have. Right? Because we don't have to work hard to get what we want. We can have whatever we want, whenever we want it, if we're willing to take on the debt. And so we ease our way into the process. I remember when I got my first credit card, and I promised myself only to use it. I really needed to. And, and I kept that uh, commitment for probably days. I was a college student. What did I say? Right? I, I never intended. I never intended to be so uh, free with that. But it was so easy because there were things I really wanted. And I didn't want to deny myself those things, and now I could suddenly have them. I was willing to pay the debt when it eventually came, because I always thought, somehow, it would be possible. And so I could run up more and more debt, and this is what we do. Right? Our consumer debt is staggering. Our mortgages, our, our loans for various things. It's so easy to get credit. It's so easy to go deeper and deeper into debt. As a result, as, as Polonius warns, we become servants of our debt. But our payments, literally, the payments that we make on our credit cards every month, those payments service our debt. That's what they do in financial terms, and, and it's, it's an appropriate word. Right? Because we find that because of the debt, we're no longer like, looking forward to what we want to do or what we want to have. But everything is focused on we're serving who we must serve so that we can hold on to what we have, so we can stay afloat. The uh, average consumer debt of Americans is pretty staggering. On average, credit card debt runs to about $15,752. People typically have about $168,614 worth of mortgage loans. Auto loans average at 27,141. Student loans, the highest 48,172. And if you're like me, when you hear numbers like that, and you realize that your average is lower, you're thinking, wow, okay, I could go up a little higher and still be below average, right? Because we've become accustomed to operating in this way. And that's just where it's manageable, like at the averages, right? It doesn't take much for it to become unmanageable, right? For expenses that you didn't anticipate to come along, you know, medical expenses, and can suddenly pile up in incredible ways. And you, you, you thought you were getting by, and now you're overwhelmed. And because of that, that we changed the way we see the world. I was listening uh, over the summer, I mean, a university provost was talking about 
described as the, the hidden worldview of consumerism. And as a result of the world that we live in, and as a result of the fact that we mainly interact with that world as consumers, it changes the way we think about all sorts of things. But the fact that we are first and foremost consumers changes the way we think about, for example, our, our political problems. So that we look at politics, we look at government, and we think that should be run more like a business. We look at the institutions in our life primarily as consumers would look at them. So we enter into communities like the church, not looking to contribute to it or be a part of it, but looking to consume things. We evaluate the worth of things based on whether they serve us, based on whether we would pay for them, or at least charge them. All of that, I think, that behavior, while it may look new, is not that new. All of those patterns are recognizable as the patterns of sin. Right? When we sin, we indulge ourselves. The debt of sin, we ran it up by, by not denying ourselves the things that we wanted. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this is how Solomon describes himself. As this man who possessed profound wisdom, who wanted to know how we ought to live, how a human being under the sun and fallen world could give his life meaning. He says to himself, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from him. But he indulged himself in everything. And once he'd done that, he asked himself, how did it turn out? And it turned out that it was all meaningless. It was all vanity. That the pursuit of happiness, in other words, hadn't resulted in happiness, it resulted in misery. And I think this is true for us. As consumers, we pursue fulfillment by, by surrounding ourselves with more things, and we feel less fulfilled, not more. And as sinners, we seek fulfillment by denying ourselves nothing. At the end, we feel more empty, not less, as a result of that self-indulgence. And it seems like if the problem is self-indulgence, that the answer must be self-discipline. And, and frankly, this is where the analogy breaks down a bit. Right? Because in some cases, where your debt is concerned, self-discipline is exactly the answer. If you want to get out of debt, then I encourage you to get out of debt. If you want to get out of debt, then you need to spend less, make more, pay off your debt. Be disciplined over time, and that's possible. Right? We tell ourselves it's impossible, and yet, it is possible to get out of debt, to be free of debt, especially if your situation is not yet so bad that it has become unmanageable. If we've been bad, we tell ourselves that now it's time to start being good. We will balance the scales. We will offset all of that bad behavior with some good behavior, and it will all balance out. We will amend our ways. So if your debt, your consumer debt, is manageable, then you can spend less, make more, and get out of debt. In extreme cases, it's even possible, and it's a mercy that it's possible to have a bankrupt situation. But, again, this is where debt, you're thinking the money that you owe, isn't like debt in terms of the debt of sin. But because the debt of sin isn't a manageable debt, the debt of sin the 
averages are much worse than the numbers that I just quoted to you. But the debt of sin requires a payment that you cannot make. The wages of sin are debt. The wages of sin are debt. And then you think, okay, fine, well, I, I can't die. I'm capable of dying. But it's, it's worse than that. In order to atone for your sin, you must do more than die. You must also be able to offer up as a sacrifice a perfect life. So you're not able, and I'm not able, to make the payment for the death of sin. It is beyond our ability to do this. And unlike the debts that we accrue in this life, which sometimes can be, the blind eye can be permanent. It can be restructured. This is a payment that must be made. It is a payment that must be made. No blind eye can be permanent. We need to feel the weight of our sin the way we feel the weight of our death. We need to understand that the weight of our sin is actually something more significant than just the weight of our death. It means more. It is more crippling. It is more destroying, destructive to us than the weight of our death could ever be. We need to recognize more than that, though, our inability to pay the debt of sin. Because as long as we hold on to the idea that if we could just recognize our sinfulness and start over again, that then we could make this right, that we could live a better life, that we could somehow set, set the balance right, that, that will never be capable of making it We ran out of that through self-indulgence, but we can't get out of it through self-discipline. The good news is, we don't have to. The good news is, we have Christ crucified. The cross means freedom, because Jesus canceled your debt by paying it. Paul says, you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The tradition was, when a man was crucified, his crime was written on a placard, and that placard was nailed to his cross. The reason why he was being executed, his crime, would be announced by the words that were nailed to the cross. And as you know, when Jesus was crucified, that indictment was written by Pilate. He wrote, he's the king of the Jews. And they argued with him. And then we should say, he said he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate, in one of those rare bursts of wisdom, says, I've, but I've written that written. So that the accusation stands. He is killed because he is king. And now we're told, there's a significance to that kingship. There's a significance to that sacrifice. That what was nailed to the cross when Jesus made that atoning death was the record of debt against us. The record of the debt of sin. Everything that we needed to pay was paid for by the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no debt left for you to pay. There is no reason to stay up at night agonizing over how you can amend your ways. 
over how you can start living your life better, over how you can, despite your past, start being a good person, it's not necessary. Because at the cross, those fears, those debts, those anxieties, all of it was nailed to the cross. And Christ died for them. He died to pay for them. And imagine the feeling. I mean, imagine if you woke up this morning and you came to church, and the good news that we proclaimed was, guess what? We all got together and we decided to pay off your mortgage for you. And we paid off your credit cards. And your student loan debts, you don't need to worry about that. We handled that for you. Your medical bills, we took care of. You don't actually owe anything anymore. Imagine what that would feel like. Imagine the, the, the tears of joy that you could weep in that moment. Bad news is, we didn't get together and have a flash and pay off your mortgage or your credit card bills or any of that. But something better was paid for. Something that should weigh much more heavily than any debt in this life that you have incurred has been lifted off your shoulders for eternity. Unlike those other debts, this is a debt you could never pay yourself. A debt that would condemn you for eternity. It has been paid. The tragedy for us as a as Americans, as human beings, the tragedy for us as believers is that we can feel the joy of the mortgage paid off so much more easily than we can feel the joy that of sin atoned for by Christ. I'm not by nature an emotional person. I'm not constantly in tears or jumping up and down, that sort of thing. I tend to, to regard emotion at a distance. But, but I suspect that, that if you told me all my bills were paid, I would probably get emotional. I would probably be demonstrative for a few moments. And I would like to be able to feel that when Jesus says, don't worry about the debt of your sin, it has been paid. It has been nailed to the cross. If there's one emotion I would like to feel, it is the proper, the right emotion that hearing that good news proclaimed has comfort my heart, realizing that even the most emotional of us have never felt it. We've never felt it enough, no matter how joyous we've been when the gospel was proclaimed, the good news of our salvation has been proclaimed. No one has ever felt appropriate joy at that news because we've never realized how much it means. We've never been able to see just how significant it was. The reality is in Christ's death, we die to sin. And when we die in Christ, our obligation to sin to the law, it ends forever. And when Christ is resurrected by God and we are resurrected with Him, we live again in freedom. Romans 6.6, 6, Paul said, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We would no longer be shackled and bonded to sin, but rather by the death of Christ, we would be set free. The cross means freedom for us. 
the crossing's freedom from a captivity that in many cases we are so comfortable with that we don't even recognize it for what it is. And yet Jesus sets the captives free. Jesus pays the debt of sin for us. So how, stop telling yourself that your debt is bad. Stop telling yourself that you can discipline yourself to such an extent that you can start paying that debt. Instead, be free in Christ. Put your faith in the Redeemer, who is the great counselor of all our debts. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.